Well, we are continuing our family month preaching series called The Uncommon Family. And the sermon topic or question that I was given to preach, the one that I was assigned is, when I'm not happy at home, no big deal, I'm sure none of you have ever been unhappy at home. Uh, I was telling my wife this and she goes, you don't have any examples from home. I'm like, well, you don't have any examples. No, I'm just kidding. Sky would never say that. But here's the thing, it's a tough question, honestly, because it's ubiquitous. All of us have had unhappiness at home at some point or another. Do you know why? Because I'm a sinner and so are you. We are sinners who live with sinners who act like sinners. This is a ubiquitous issue. But also, it's so case by case. There's so many scenarios and situations, and you may hear this and you go, oh, I hope Pastor Jared addresses this thing or that. I might, I might not. We can't cover, there is no one-size-fits-all approach, so we're going to look at what God's Word says and dig into the text, and we want God to speak to us to this question. Now, if you hear that question and you are pained in your heart, that question hits a little too close to home, literally, can I just say, we hear you, we hear your hurt, we validate your hurt, we acknowledge that your hurt is real, I'm not going to sidestep it. We're not going to dismiss it. We're not going to invalidate it. That pain is real. The unhappiness is real. In fact, unhappiness really is often an alarm. Bells go off that something is wrong, either internally in our hearts or externally in our homes. Something is wrong. The issue is how do we diagnose it? I don't know how many of you have ever played Sudoku. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Did anyone play Sudoku? Am I saying that right? Sudoku, Sudoku, however you say it. Here you go. This is, this is Sudoku. If you don't know what this is, it's like a crossword puzzle with numbers. I hate playing it because I'm terrible at it. Some of you, you're so good at it, you're looking at the numbers right now and you're like solving it in your head, like done, boom. So if you've never played before, here's the gist. You have digits one through nine. And each row, you have to use all nine digits. And each column, you have to use all nine digits. And each square of nine, you have to use all nine digits. They're just scrambled. You can't repeat. Well, if you are playing this game online and you solve the puzzle, or so you think, you click, click submit, one of two things is going to happen. Number one, it's either going to say, you solved the puzzle, yay, you win. Or, eh, you have 10 mistakes. Now go correct them. And it doesn't tell you where the mistakes are. That's for you to identify. You have to diagnose the issue and find where the problems are. You have to correctly order what has been disordered. And unhappiness in the home is the air message that something is wrong. Things are out of order. Now, you need to biblically diagnose it. You use scripture and you correct to the best of your ability what has been disordered, either in your heart or in your approach externally. So I'm going to give you five categories. We're going to go through these really quick. So if you're taking notes, get your pen and paper ready. The first one is disordered vision. These are categories of what might be wrong and causing unhappiness, disordered vision. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be most of this morning, Colossians chapter 3. And you can look on the screen if you don't have... A copy of the scriptures. Colossians 3, verse 1. 
if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If you are in Christ by faith, then you are paradoxically and simultaneously both alive and dead. What do you mean I'm dead? I mean, I can check my pulse. Love dub, love dub, love dub. I'm al- I could feel my heart beating. What do you mean I'm dead? Well, this is not a physical reality. It's a spiritual one. The old life, the old you is dead, praise God. The former ways are false in Christ. Verse three says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Your life is not your own. You're not the source of it, not the purpose of it, not the essence of it, not even the ownership of it. Your life is now hidden with Christ. That means it's all wrapped up and enveloped and blobbed into who Jesus is. When you trust in Jesus, Jesus becomes your life. Your values, your priorities, your ambitions, your goals, your everything is all intertwined and wrapped up in Jesus. He's not just the source of your life. Jesus is your life. Come on, somebody. He becomes your ultimate ambition, your life's highest priority, your greatest value. And everything else finds its place beneath him. So in the old values of the old life, let's say in the Sudoku of life, you didn't have the number one in the proper place. You didn't have the one, the number one in the proper location of the Sudoku tiles of life. Jesus was not in the ultimate place. And honestly, folks, our world is so filled with modern day Pinocchios who look real. They want to be a real boy or girl. They, they look real, they act like they have life, they are seeking life, but they're seeking life in all the wrong places, all the wrong thing. They pursue life in their own ways, seeking happiness in self. And so they are wooden puppets. You know, there are no strings on me. <laughs> Being played by the marionettist of worldly values like money, sex, power, comfort, success. pulling the strings, but you, if you are in Christ, to keep the Pinocchio analogy going, you are a real boy or girl. God breathes life into you through Jesus. He makes you new. You go from dead and wooden to now you have life. You become a new creation. So everything changes. Jesus changes everything. And that's why, look at verse 1 and 2, your vision must be on Jesus and eternal things. Verse 1, seek first the things that are above, the things of Christ. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. When you build a home, home builders will say the most expensive and time-intensive aspect of the home is what? Foundation. I don't know how many of you have built a home, but a foundation is so expensive and it takes time and for good reason. Because if that foundation is off by, let's say, half an inch, 
construction foreman, architects call it compounding defects. So it's off by half an inch, a few feet off, it's, it's up by, off by an inch. A few feet more, it's off by an inch and a half. A few feet more, and it's off by two inches. By the time you get to the roof, it's off by a few inches, which allows a gap, which allows leaks, which damages the home. And so when it settles, it's going to crack and be destroyed. You have to get the foundation right. It's the most important part of the home. And if you are in Christ, if your life is in him, your home's foundation must be centered on Christ above all. And so perhaps your unhappiness in the home is a result of skewed vision. You are not fixing your eyes on Jesus and his glory above all. Your eyes have been clouded by infinitely lesser earthly things. And it's not that those lesser things are unimportant. They are important. It's just that they are lesser things. So you need to reorder your tiles of life. So the first diagnosis, if it's disordered vision that is causing unhappiness, you have to ask yourself, am I focused on Jesus and eternal things or something that is temporary and fleeting? Like, is this really a hill to die on? Does this, is this a concern that has eternal implications? Will I care about this a thousand years from now? If it's relational, it has eternal implications. Our relationship with God and with one another is the only thing that lasts into eternity. So that's the first thing, disordered vision. Second, disordered understandings. The average person says, what makes me happy? That's the driving force in our society. What makes me happy? Not, for, not so for the Christian. In the Christian life, it's, what makes you happy, God? What pleases you? 2 Corinthians 5, 9, so whether we are at home or away, whether we are dead or alive, we make it our aim, Paul says, to please him. Paul's all-consuming ambition, the driving force of his every decision, every decision was basically this. Will this please Jesus, my Lord? Well, that alters the pursuit of happiness, doesn't it? Let me ask you this. What is the purpose of marriage? Is it happiness? Well, maybe in part. Listen, no one would get married if marriage was a drudgery. No one would get married. You, you, you wouldn't see people at the altar like, all right, let's get this over with so I can spend the rest of my life with this little ball and chain over here. No. You do it because you love that person and you foresee a life of bliss and happiness. That's what you're wanting at least. So, yeah, happiness should be part of it. Is the purpose sexual expression? Pastor Steve talked about that last week. Is the purpose procreation or parenting? You know, some can have kids, some can't. Some foster, some adopt, some don't have kids. Is it parenting? Is it companionship? Your spouse should be your best friend. Is it provision and care, mutual care? Now, all these are good. All these are true. All these are purposes of marriage, but they are secondary purposes. They are not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose of marriage, the first priority, first value of marriage and of life is to what? Please God. Gary Thomas in his book, Sacred Marriage, said it this way. What if God did not design marriage to be easier? What if God had an end in mind that went beyond our happiness, beyond our comfort, beyond our desire to be infatuated and happy as if this world were a perfect place? What if God designed marriage, and I'm adding this, or parenting, or singleness, to make us holy 
more than to make us happy. God is not indifferent to your unhappiness. He's not indifferent to your suffering. Quite the opposite. He cares about your unhappiness. He cares about your unhappiness because he cares more about you than you care about you. Do you realize that? Which means he may be using the difficulty of marriage and family to sanctify you, to make you more like Jesus. Look at verses 5 through 12. Verse 5, put to death earthly things. What earthly things, Paul? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. These were all the internal struggles of the old you. Verse 8, put away. Literally, in the Greek, it's strip off as if a garment, like your clothes. Just strip them off. Strip off anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. These are all external actions from an internal earthly heart. Verse 9 and 10, put off the old self and its practices. Put on the new self, which is continually being renewed in Jesus. And then verse 12, as God's holy, as God's what? Holy and beloved chosen ones, put on Christ. Put on the things of Christ, the character of Christ, because again, your life is in Christ. Paul is describing the process, and bear no Mistake, it is a process, lifelong process. He's describing the process of holiness in the Christian life. God uses various means to prompt the putting off of the old and the putting on of the new. Do you realize holiness literally means set apart or, get this, uncommon? So when we talk about the uncommon family, folks, we're talking about the holy family. We live differently than the world. So perhaps in the crucible of marriage and family, God is refining us and making us more like Jesus. Of course you have moments of unhappiness in your home. You're a sinner living with sinners who act like sinners. (gasps) We're sinners. That's why we need grace. That's why we need Jesus. But that gives you opportunities to practice and exhibit Christ-likeness. Third, maybe it's disordered expectations. It's not wrong to want to be happy. I mean, after all, God created happiness, right? We couldn't be happy if God didn't create happiness. God created emotions. He created gladness, but as a means to worship and glorify him, not as a means to worship and glorify self, nor to delight solely in earthly things. God gave us good desires in creation to be fulfilled in our creator. But here's the thing. Sin entered in. And sin corrupted and twisted and warped these good God-given desires. When you look into a mirror, what do you see? You see your reflection. You see your image. Now imagine that you took a hammer to that mirror and it split into a thousand pieces. But the pieces are all still there. And you look in the mirror now, what do you see? Well, you see a reflection. You see an image. It's still your reflection. It's still your image, but it's broken. It's shattered. It's distorted. That's what sin has done. It distorted God's good, given desires of grace and twisted them. So the desire for rest became laziness. Sex turned into self-glorification. 
self-gratification. Justice became rage and vengeance. Dependence on God turned into greed for more. Nourishment became gluttony. Companionship into codependency. Delightful longing for our creator became depraved lust for his creation, and on and on and on. C.S. Lewis referred to these as disordered loves in his book, The Four Loves. Disordered desires. The desire for happiness is good. It's God-given. The problem is where we put its focus. The problem is where we think the source is. See, the Bible actually talks quite a bit about happiness, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, it uses the word asher. Everyone say asher. asher. So our, by the way, Bethel, Bethel HP uh, worship leader, Daniel Asher, technically that means Daniel Happy. So next time you see him, call him Happy Daniel. <laughs> Don't do that. He probably won't like that. It's asher. It means happy, but it also is usually often translated Blessed. And we see that in Psalm 32, for example. Your copy probably says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, but it's really happy. Asher is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's verse 1. Then the last verse, verse 11, commands, be glad in the Lord. And rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Gladness is commanded here. Asher, happiness. We're commanded to be happy. Now, that's interesting. We're commanded to be glad, but it's the source that's important in the Lord. Similarly, in the New Testament, it's the Greek word makarios, which is the word used in Matthew 5 in the, in the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus in the Beatitudes. And this is wild stuff. This is crazy because the conditions that Jesus lists that make one happy or blessed are not what you would expect. Blessed or happy are the Poor in spirit? Happy are those who mourn? Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake? Now, if I told you you can be happy, but to be happy, you had to be poor, hungry, thirsty, mournful, sorrowful, and persecuted, you would think I've lost my mind. You would say, you are crazy. The only way this all makes sense is if our happiness, our joy is in the Lord. Amen. That's why Philippians 4, verse 4, says rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. How often, church? Always. Again, I say, because it's so good, rejoice. I love that. Paul's like, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. But it's in who? The Lord. That's the key. He is the source. He has to be the source. So if you seek to find your happiness in yourself or in your family, your spouse, they will fail you. It's the law of diminishing returns. You know, the law of diminishing returns says, if I find something that makes me happy, awesome. The next time I experience it, I'm going to be happy, but it's going to be less. The next time, even less. The next time, even less and less and less. We see this with all kinds of things, entertainment, Drugs, substance abuse, time with friends, whatever. Whatever makes you happy, video games, it starts out really happy. But the next time it's, ah, it's depleted, not as happy. And then less and less and less. Do you know why? It's because the source is finite. 
of course you get less and less. You are draining from a finite source and your family members are finite. They're not infinite. They're not God. They cannot be the source of your happiness. So think of people you know who are preoccupied with approval, with performance, with success and status. And then think of Christians you know who are most preoccupied with God's glory and serving others. Now you tell me who's most satisfied and fulfilled and happy. Performance, people-pleasing, these things will destroy you. Or your family members, if you're holding them to that high standard, no one can live up to our expectations. They can't live up to yours. You can't live up to them. It's not going to make you happy. Rather than pursuing happiness based on circumstances, pursue joy based on perspective. Instead of happiness based on emotions, how you feel, pursue joy based on identity, who you are. In lieu of seasonal, temporary happiness based on how others act, how others treat you, pursue enduring joy even in suffering based on what Christ did for you. So seek contentment, seek joy, seek identity, but not in your family members, not in your spouse, your parents, your kids, your siblings, but in Christ alone because he's the one that gives you those things. Fourth, so that was disordered expectations, disordered priorities. When you feel unhappy in the home, before you start blame shifting, before you start pointing fingers at others, I want you to do, do some spiritual introspection and ask yourself, where's my plank? What in the world does that mean? Well, Matthew 7, Jesus is talking about, he says, the standard with which you judge others, you're going to be judged by that same standard. So he says, imagine if there's someone who, and this is silly, it's meant to be a humorous illustration, has a giant two-by-four sticking out of their eye, and they come up to you and they're like, Psst, I don't want to embarrass you, but you got a speck of sawdust in your eye. While they have a Home Depot big two-by-four sticking out of theirs. Like, that's ludicrous. Do you see how absurd that is? It's meant to be absurd. It's meant to show hypocrisy like, oh, get the sawdust out of your own eye. Well, how about you get the giant log out of yours? We are meant to look at that and go, ooh, I think I got my own problems. And before I start addressing others in my home, maybe I should address mine. And that's the point. Get the log out of your own eye first. So ask yourself, where are my priorities? Is it social media over conversation? Do I just get home and get on my phone? When there's conflict, do I get defensive or do I listen? Is it prioritizing work or entertainment over time with spouse and kids? Because make no mistake, Ephesians 5 is very clear, crystal clear, that if you are married, Jesus is first, your spouse is second. Then yourself is way after that. So where are my priorities? Where am I at fault? What is my part in this conflict? And then after doing some spiritual introspection, asking God, reveal the plank in my eye, in my heart, so I can see clearly then I want you to pray the prayer we see Daniel, I'm sorry, David prays in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O God, 
That's a prayer of examination. That's a prayer of contrition. That's a prayer of confession and repentance. So before you go to your spouse, your kids, your parents, you need to first confess before the Lord. Now up to this point, our Sudoku uh, diagnosis, analysis of our home has been internal, examining self, and for good reason. But there may be other factors at play that, to be honest, I wish I could cover this morning. We just don't have time. It might be things like spiritual warfare. There is a very real enemy who is the deceiver. He's the father of lies, and he's whispering lies. Maybe you are buying into it. Maybe it's mental health, clinical depression. Those are real things. I can go on. There are other factors. In any case, seek help. But I want to give the last one, one more diagnosis. This one's not internal. First four were internal. This one's external. This one's in your home. There may be difficult or strained relationships in your home, which leads to the number, number five, disordered relations. Look at verse 18 of Colossians 3. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This is what the home should look like. But it doesn't always. And in some instances, rarely and maybe, maybe never, depending on your home. This is what it should look like. But, but what if, opposite of verse 18, what if spouses were disrespectful to each other? What if, opposite of verse 19, what if spouses were not loving toward each other but were often harsh with one another? What if, okay, and this is a stretch. What if children were disobedient to their parents? Take some time. You're going to have to really dig deep and imagine that hard. What if parents unnecessarily anger their children and provoke them and discourage them? Disrespect, neglect, anger, harshness, discouragement, reviling, passivity. Does that describe your home? Are you roommates instead of soulmates? Is your spouse just playing prevent defense in your marriage rather than being proactive in your marriage and working at it? If any of these things apply, then the unhappiness alarms should be going off because things are not as they should be. So how do we respond to others in our home? Listen, how you respond is paramount. It's vital. But remember, it's not you responding, it's Christ in you. If you have life in Christ, if you are in Christ, it's Christ in you. He has to be the one that responds to your spouse, your kids, your family members through you. So look at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I'm going to give you three things under this category. Number one. Respond as Jesus would. Now that's hard. In fact, I will say that's impossible unless you have Jesus in you. But if you have Jesus in you, now you get to act and live and respond as Jesus would. How did he respond when he was persecuted? Compassion. Look what it says. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Which is why it is so important to seek Jesus first. We become what we behold. 
That's why verse 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Be in God's word every day, multiple times a day. Let, let God's word, the word of Christ, steep in your soul like a tea bag steeping in hot water, just flavoring you with the flavor of Jesus. And then you will respond like Jesus. Your spouse, your kids are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. Satan is the enemy. But sometimes it seems as if your family members treat you with enmity. How do you respond in those unhappy times? Well, the temptation will be to respond in kind. They yell at you, oh yeah, you yell at them. They insult you, you insult them. You, and it just whoo, escalates conflict. Or maybe you're one who hates conflict and you withdraw and avoid, which is equally unhealthy. You don't want to deal with it, so you're just going to have nothing to do with them. You'll distance yourself emotionally, physically, spiritually, verbally. Those are not healthy ways to react, to respond in conflict. Romans 12 says to let love be genuine. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Don't repay evil with evil. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It actually says show such kindness that it's like heaping burning coals on their head. I don't know why, but I think of Home Alone, Merv, Marv, whatever, one of the bad guys, you know, he opens the door, Kelvin McAllister has a blowtorch, and he's not like, oh, what a nice little breeze. He's like, ah! right? He can't ignore that. You can't ignore burning coals on your head, I think. I'm not going to try it. If you try it, let me know how that goes for you. If you show kindness, if you show grace, if you show patience and humility and love and respond to your spouse or kids or whatever in that kind of way, I'm telling you, it will plague their thoughts. They will be like, what? This is so uncommon. This is not how our world, this is not how I respect, expected, expected them to react. Right, because Jesus is uncommon. Second, bear with one another. That's what it says. This means willingness to endure with your family members despite differences and frustrations. This is not putting up with one another or glossing over difficulties while harboring bitterness or allowing sinful behaviors to run rampant. It is committing to endure with one another, not scratching the seven-year itch. Couples that stick it through have this rare gem of perseverance. My mom's birthday is today, and uh, she turned 72. And my parents will, uh, this year would be 52 years they've been married. And my mom has had MS, and I read an article years ago that said uh, when a spouse gets MS, the divorce rate goes up beyond over 80%. But I've seen my parents stick with it. And she's even probably on her deathbed this week. And I've seen my dad by her side. I've seen my mom pray despite her suffering. And it's leaving a legacy with me and our family and our kids. And it'll be a generational legacy. There's something powerful and beautiful about perseverance. I've talked with couples who say, well, I've fallen out of love. No, you've fallen out of a feeling. Feelings can be come and go. They can be had again. You can fall back into love. You got to work at it. Verses, look at, look at verse 14, put on love. Love is a verb. Love is a decision. It's an action which binds together in harmony. Let me read Tim Keller. 
uh, wrote this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says, in any relationship, there will be frightening spells in which your feelings of love dry up. And when that happens, you must remember that the essence of marriage is that it is a covenant, a commitment, a promise of future love. So what do you do? You do the acts of love, despite your lack of feeling. You may not feel tender, sympathetic, eager to please, but in your actions, you must be tender, understanding, forgiving, and helpful. And if you do that, as time goes on, you will not only get through the dry spells, but they will become less frequent and deep, and you will become more constant in your feelings. This is what can happen if you decide to love. So bearing with them. Bearing with them means persevering prayer. Pray for them. Before you vent to others about them, before you talk to anyone, go, before you even talk to them, go to God first in prayer. Pray for, and better yet, pray with, if it's allowed, that person, if you can. Bearing with them might also mean overlooking an offense, Proverbs 19.11, which is not the same as denial. Overlooking is an active process of grace and mercy. You ask yourself, am I able to overlook the offense? Because it's, it's just not a hill to die on. Should I overlook the offense? If the offense dishonors God or hurts a person or any relationship in any way, you need to address the issue for the good of that person and for the glory of God. Jesus says that in Matthew 18. He says that if someone sins against you, you go to that person. You talk to them first and you address it. Now, in the marriage workshops that we do, we talk about how do you address it. And I don't have time to get into that. You just do the marriage workshops that we have uh, the retreat and the other workshops coming up. But here's the thing. If you can't overlook it, care enough to confront. But your approach is vital. Do so, again, like verse 12, with compassion, with grace, humility, care, love, gentleness. Which leads to the third thing. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And this is hard because you may not want to forgive. When you really grasp how much you have been forgiven by God, it becomes difficult not to forgive. True forgiveness is not conditional. Oh, I forgive you if, no. True forgiveness is not forgetful, as if nothing ever happened. Forgive does not equal forget. Forgiveness is not pretending everything is fine. It's not an automatic cure for the hurt. Forgiveness is a first step. It's a decision. It's a process, and it takes time. Forgiveness is choosing to not hold the offense over the person. In the words of Elsa, which my girls love from Frozen, let it go. Okay, we're not going to sing it right now, but that's forgiveness. Now, I want to tackle one more thing, and I don't really have time to get into this either. It's kind of outside the scope of this, but what about toxicity in your home? Some of you are in that place. Abuse, abandonment. There's someone toxic in your home. What about that? Well, uh, I don't have time to tell the whole story, but in Genesis 16, you have Abraham and Sarah, and they're promised that they're going to have a child in their old age. Well, it's been years and years. They don't have a child, and so Sarah says, here, Abraham, here's my servant, Hagar, impregnate her. And he's like, okay. And so he does. <laughs> and yeah, there's no perfect family in scripture. They're all jacked up, messed up, which is encouraging to us, comforting to us. And so she gets pregnant. Well, then Sarah, who had this bright idea, is filled with jealousy and envy and rage. And she says, send her packing. And they do. That's basically sentencing her and her kid to death. 
They send her into the wilderness, into the desert, and she's weeping, she's crying, and it's in that moment the Lord meets her and promises her amazing blessings. And you know what she calls God? She says, you are El Roi. You're the God who sees me. God sees you. He sees you. Listen to me. Listen. Look at me. He sees you. And he knows you. And he is with you. So seek the Lord. Set healthy boundaries. If your spouse or kids or whatever is screaming insults at you, respond calmly, but just say, listen, I don't have to take this. Uh, If you're going to treat me this way, I'm going to go into the other room. If you want to have an adult conversation and sit down calmly, let me know, but I'm going to You set healthy boundaries, right? And there are other ways you can do that. Seek the Lord, set healthy boundaries, get help.